0: morning everyone. So we are continuing in our series through the gospel of Mark. So um, that text that Bill read from Luke 19 is a really helpful complement to the passage that we're going to consider this morning. So uh, you'll want to turn though to Mark chapter 2. The passage we're going to look at is chapters 2 verses 13 to 22. Mark chapter 2 Verses 13 to 22. And if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find that on page 837. So while you're turning there, I want you to think about the fact that grace is scandalous. Do you know that? Do you know that grace is scandalous? We should be scandalized by grace. Let me get at it this way. Why was the older brother angry in the so-called parable of the prodigal son? You know, we call it the prodigal son. You could probably say more accurately it's the parable of the lost sons because there's two lost sons in this parable. And actually at the end of the thing, the older son who stayed home was farther from home than the younger son. Right? But again, the question is, why was the older brother angry? It's because it seemed like all his work didn't matter. I guess I'm assuming you know this parable. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't assume that. So Jesus is is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who were bugged because he's eating with sinners. And he says, Let me tell you a parable. And he tells a three part parable. And the third part is this younger son comes to his father and says, Hey, I want my share of the inheritance, which is equivalent of saying, I wish you were dead. Very shameful. And rather than beating the son, which he could have done, instead he actually gives him. His share of the inheritance. And he goes off and wasted. it. He, he went to Vegas and just wasted all of it. And so he got to the point, he was so destitute that, you know, he's basically feeding pigs and their food looked good to him. That's how bad it was. And he comes to his senses and he realizes maybe I could just work for my father. My father's hired men, you know, have it better than this. I, I'm not worthy to be called his son. And he Goes home. And his father embraces him. And he's so happy he rejoices because his lost son is found. His dead son is alive. The older son, though, hears the commotion, the party, and he will not go into the party. He's ticked off. Older son got the inheritance. So you know what? You're eating my food. Like you're lessening my inheritance all day long I slave for you. Never killed a and calf for me. Grace is scandalous. Or how about the parable of the workers in the vineyard? Familiar with that one? Matthew 20? So here's the story again, parable that Jesus told. Goes like this. Vineyard owner goes out in the morning. You know, these day laborers would be hired, so it's probably like 6 o'clock in the morning. He goes out, the people standing around, they want to work. Hey, you want a job? Great, go work in the the vineyard, and they agree to work for a denarius, which was pretty typical pay for a day laborer, one denarius per day. And then this guy goes out at nine o'clock ish, you know, the, the, the um, third hour, and there's still people standing around. Hey, you want a job? Come work in my vineyard. And then he comes at the sixth hour, which is noon, and more people has him work in his vineyard, and then the ninth hour, which is three o'clock, and then at the 11th hour, which is five o'clock, and more people are working, and then evening comes, so maybe this is six, seven o'clock at night, you know, whatever, and he's going to settle up with these people, and first calls those people that started at 6 a.m. Actually, no, he called the the last-minute people first, right, and he gives them a denarius and so the people that started at 6 a.m. are thinking all right we're going to get paid today and they just get a denarius and they're all upset well didn't you agree to work for a denarius grace is scandalous if you are working hard to get right with God you are wasting your time Because God is a doctor who gives prescriptions to sick souls, not a boss who gives paychecks to people who fulfill his job descriptions. So here's the question. Do you relate to God like that? It's really easy to even begin the right way, to begin like Grace is a gift. But then, you know, as the hours go by and all this work, we can start to feel like, you know, middle class spiritually. Like I've done my time. I deserve my blessings. Thank you, Lord. And then we suffer and we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I deserve better than this. We can kind of be middle class in spirit rather than poor in spirit. You have the Galatians who started with the Spirit, and Paul saying, whoa, having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected in the flesh as if you could do this on your own steam? So grace is scandalous, and we need to realize that all of the Christian life is by grace from the beginning to the end. We can't relate to God like a boss, even though he is our Lord. He is first and always our great physician the doctor of our souls from beginning to end. So we'll see this reinforced here in Mark chapter 2. So why don't we read through this passage um, from beginning to end, and then it's not not that long, and then we'll walk through it. All right, so Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. So Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. To call the righteous but sinners. Now, John's disciples, that would be John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. All right. So let's dive in here. Point number 1. What are you doing at this table? verses 13 to 17. So imagine yourself the mother, or if you're a male, the father of a few small children and a one-month-old in particular. And you're living check to check. And for some reason, even though you or your wife um, longs to breastfeed your babies, your milk has dried up in the past and again with this newborn three to four weeks in. So there's a baby formula shortage. I figured I would kind of contemporize this, you know, it's pretty relevant today, sadly. Um, There's a, so that's no joke. Um, There's a baby formula shortage and you're getting desperate. Let's say you live near a port city and the only baby formula in the region is coming in by way of that port. You make your way down to purchase some baby formula and find that the port warehouse that's receiving and selling all the baby formula is being run by some shady people. There's no regulation or customs, you know, here where you are, wherever you live, hypothetically, in this story, come on, go with it, you know, I know it breaks down, um, I'm sure in a million ways, but, so basically these shady people kind of elbowed their way in, they purchased the rights to run all the imports and distribution, and under normal circumstances, a can of baby formula would run you 20 $25 dollars. They're charging $75 to $90, even though their costs are around $25, whatever. I mean, you can paint the picture here. It's your only option, even though you have no idea how you're going to afford it. Because remember, you're going to check the check. So how do you feel about those people? How do you feel about those people running you know, this thing out of this warehouse, taking advantage of vulnerable, needy people. They are heartless opportunists. They're shameless in it, preying on, you know, particularly vulnerable, weak people. I mean, come on, this is for babies, for crying out loud. Or picture, you know, like the payday car title loan people. I mean, it's legal, but they can actually you know, offer loans at an annualized rate of almost 400% because they're short-term loans and so it ends up turning out to be something like 45% interest. How do you feel about those people? Do you want to go, you know, eat steak and seafood with them on the weekends? Just hang out with them? How about the scam call people or the scam email people? Have you known anybody that's gotten scammed? Like imagine your grandmother got scammed out of like some significant money and it was one of those, you know, nice telemarketer people. How do you feel about those people? How about casino owners? The ones who design their buildings, you know, without windows, so people lose track of time. So they just, you know, continue to give way to their addiction and just run themselves into the ground. Are those are people you want to hang out with, <laughs> go out with for the night on the town? No, no thanks. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is actually doing here. So verse 13, he went out again beside the sea. All the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Okay, so this is also Matthew. It's not unusual for people at the time to have two names, sometimes a Semitic name, Jewish name, and a Greek name like Saul and Paul. No, he didn't get a new name when he became a Christian. He had a Hebrew name and a Greek name. When he was hanging out, like if you read the book of Acts, when he's in Hebrew country, when he's with Jews, he goes by Saul. When he goes on his mission to the Gentiles, he starts going by Paul. Anyway, a little sidebar there. So Levi is Matthew. He's sitting at the tax booth, and and Jesus said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So, you know, Matthew, Levi became one of the 12 apostles. So we're familiar with this, but this is craziness. Like, we should stop and just think about how amazing it is that Jesus pulled the group of disciples, apostles together that he did and held them together. Remember, one of the, one of the disciples was a zealot. A zealot and a tax collector are like oil and water. Like absolute opposite poles. And frankly, it's likely that Levi here is a poll tax collector, and it's possible that he knew the fishermen apostles because he taxed their fish. So, again, they probably wouldn't be the greatest of friends, you know, the best to hold together. So, this is shocking to the religious establishment. But you can imagine that this would also be hard for the average Jewish peasant to accept. Like wait, these people are in league with Rome to oppress us. Like tax farmers, they would bid on a region, you know, kind of like earning the right to collect the tax in this region. They would pay up front like how much for this region? They'd pay and then whatever they collected above that amount was theirs to keep. So it was a system that encouraged and rewarded exploitation, and they were corrupt, and they were known to be, they were just detested, okay? So they took advantage of people, and many of these people were poor peasants. It's even worse, Levi many of the other tax collectors, they were Jews. So it's bad enough that they were exploiting people, but even worse that they're exploiting their own people. So when a Jew chose this line of work, he was despising his heritage. He became an outcast. So they were actually categorized. I mean, there's writings from, you know, these early centuries, categorized among murderers and thieves. He was excommunicated from the synagogue. By then, he probably didn't care, obviously. And he cast a shadow of disgrace over his family. So you gotta be shameless to do this, right? Again, we've we've just gotta get in the, like, world of the Bible and understand what's going on here if we're really gonna kind of experience what Jesus is doing here. So Jews would have distrusted and detested these people because they're like greedy sellouts. Why would Jesus call one of these guys to be his disciple? Well, it gets worse. Not only call, he not only calls Levi, he's now found eating with a bunch of his buddies. Look at verse 15. And as Jesus reclined at table in most likely Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's interesting. It's just possible that Mark is capturing this in a way that gives the impression that Jesus is the host. Even though this is in Levi's house, look at at how it gets stated there. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. It's not stated the other way around. Even though Jesus is at Levi's house, it's not Jesus was reclining with Levi and his friends. Because really, Jesus is the host of this meal, in a sense. So, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, did you ever notice that before? There were many who followed him. Many tax collectors and sinners who followed Jesus. Jesus. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, or sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a great question. What are you doing at this table? What is Jesus doing eating with tax collectors and sinners? We've talked a lot about tax collectors. What what does this mean, sinners? I thought we were all sinners. Well, that's actually a technical term, kind of in the first century. And I'll let commentator William Lane summarize this well. So the term is technical in this context for a class of people who, re- who were regarded by the Pharisees as inferior because they showed no interest in the scribal tradition. They didn't care about the Torah. The scribes often dismissed as inconsequential the common people who possessed neither time nor inclination to regulate their conduct by Pharisaic standards. They were particularly despised because they didn't eat their food in a state of ceremonial cleanness because, and because they failed to separate the tithe. The designation sinners as used by the scribes is roughly equivalent to outcasts. So Jesus is clearly violating their laws of ritual purity, it's like Jesus is just okay eating with the enemies of God. Table fellowship was a big deal at that time. Very meaningful thing. It meant that you were friends, kinship, unity with someone. Or you were on your way to it. It was like a, an offer of that kind of relationship. Exactly. Exactly. This was the heart of Jesus' mission. This is why he came. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous as if there are any, but you certainly think that you are. You don't think that you're sick. You don't think that you need a soul doctor, the great physician. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this table fellowship thing with Levi, this is not just like a sidebar kind of one-off thing. It's tied in with the very mission of Jesus. He intends to create a new community. A new community of people by way of a new covenant. It's a community of mercy for the forgiven. That's That's who makes up this new covenant community is soul sick sinners who need forgiveness and mercy and grace. So Jesus uses this traditional proverb. They would have been aware of it. They would have even affirmed it generally speaking. They just didn't think it applied to them. Like those who who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. They didn't think it applied to them. They didn't think they were sick, and they also didn't like the fact that Jesus was breaking purity laws in order to reach out to these people. But he came to call sinners. Remember back in chapter 1, Chris preached on this a few weeks ago. When, when John the Baptist was arrested, one fourteen and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the call. He's calling sinners, repent of your sin and trust God because I'm bringing the good news of the gospel. In fact, I'm going to accomplish the good news of the gospel. So it was a call to come and follow him. We are sin sick. Jesus is the great physician. Jesus calls Levi, eats with sinners. What he's doing is he's demonstrating. God's love in that while we were still sinners Jesus came to die for us he came to eat with us to welcome us in and to die for us so no wonder there's such riffraff on the guest list I mean verse 17 is obviously the key summary here Jesus friend of sinners that's who I came for for the Pharisees you only had fellowship with the ritually clean what are you doing at that table? They were trying to establish their own righteousness rather than see their need of forgiveness and cleansing and the gift of God's righteousness. So you can imagine how scandalous this was in that day, but it can also be in ours as well. We need to be careful not to fall into that Galatian, you know, error We should rejoice here. Like, if you can rejoice here, then you get it. (laughs) You know, like you know who you are without the grace of God. This is the lavish, just prodigal love of God. Jesus is handing out invitations with reckless abandon. So, I mean, this, this kind of only makes sense, but we just need to make it explicit here. If Jesus is the great physician, it would be crazy for him to avoid sick people. It's exactly who he came to be with. It's the heart of who he is. It's the reason why he came. That's why any of us can sit at the Lord's table. So, if someone came in here on a Sunday morning and they weren't familiar with Christianity, and you know they're watching us participate in the Lord's table, um, you can imagine maybe we do it in the gym and we had a meal together, and then we're participating in the Lord's table. And say, like, what are you what are you doing like at this table? I mean, what's, what's the answer to that question? What are you doing at this table? So they were asking him, Jesus, what are you doing at this table? But then he invites us to eat at his table. The answer is not, well, I. <laughs> it's not about our work. It's not about our righteousness. It's about his work. It's about his righteousness. I'm with him. Like, the reason I can eat at this table is because he said I could come, Right? There's an interesting foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament that maybe helps kind of bring it home a little bit. Have you ever heard of Mephibosheth? (laughs) Anybody named their child Mephibosheth? Um, Probably not. Um, So we read about him in Second Samuel, first in chapter four. Um, So Jonathan, Saul's son Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, and he was crippled in his feet. Um, He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, their death, came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So when David comes to power, he could have just wiped out all of Saul's family. You know, Saul didn't really treat him all that well, right? Tried to kill him multiple times. But because of Jonathan, he actually wanted to, Bless some of Saul's family. So there was a servant in the house of Saul named Ziba. This is in chapter 9. And they called him to David. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always and he paid homage and said what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. That's like a picture of us. I mean, if you came up to Mephibosheth and said, you know, if, let, let's say you know you come to, you're one of David's court, and you're coming and, and coming to the table to eat, and here's this great king, and here's this great table, and who's that guy? What's he doing here? Look at him, it's lame. You know, why isn't he out begging? You know, outside the gate. What are you doing here? I'm just here because of covenantal love. It's just pure kindness. I don't have. I'm a dead dog, apart from covenantal love. On my behalf. That's us, from beginning to end. No matter how long you work, no matter if you become a Christian at the at the, you know, morning hour or the third hour or the sixth hour or the ninth hour or the eleventh hour, or the thief on the cross. I mean we sung these songs so fitting come as you are (laughs) and we always can only come because of God's grace Jesus friend of sinners my hope is built on nothing less like and that's not just the start that's all the way through our Christian life so that's us and that will be us at the new creation. If you are in Christ, there is a wedding feast that is to come and if some, one of the angels were to ask, like, what are you doing here? Well, you know, I fast twice a week. I fasted twice a week from when I was 27 until I was 77. No. It's because of Jesus' blood and righteousness and his grace and mercy. So that's point number one. Point number two, why so unserious, verses 18 to 20. So a <clears throat> little story here. What if I were to tell you that when Beth and I got married, so we got married back in 1996, we had everyone fast. Like we sent this out with our, like what if I told you that we sent this out with our invitations, you know, like we want everyone to fast the whole day of our wedding to show how serious we are about marriage. What do you think of that? Tell you what I think. All those wedding day eaters and reception feasters, they're soft. They don't take marriage seriously enough. No wonder there's such a high divorce rate in this country. Sellouts, as if marriage is about the food Weakness. You think that lack of self-control has nothing to do with the sky-high divorce rate? I think not. Okay. <laughs> I'm not serious. Just kidding. Like, isn't that crazy? Verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast? You know there's only one prescribed fast in the Old Testament? conjunction with the Day of Atonement. Later on in post-exilic times, it appears that four annual fasts became normal, like normally observed by Jews. You can look at Zechariah 8 for that. Um, Esther with Purim, another, a fifth fast is added, okay? But other than that, there's no regular fasting that was commanded in the law. Pharisees, who were this renewal movement who basically were saying, like, we have to really be zealously committed to purity if God is going to come and, you know, liberate us. Like, we have to get ready. We have to be the separated holy ones. And so they led this renewal movement in Judaism. And so in their zeal, they made twice-weekly fasting their norm, Monday and Thursday. I fast twice a week, Luke Luke 19. You know, Islam has five pillars, right? Judaism had three, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And so what's going on here is like, your disciples aren't spiritually serious enough, it seems. I mean, are they taking things seriously enough? Like, what, what, what's going on here? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So first century Jewish life, weddings would last for a week. Guests simply, you know what your job as a guest was? Enjoy the party. Even rabbis would join in the celebration. I mean, it's silly to think that anybody would fast at a time like that. That's entirely the point of what Jesus is saying here. The wedding celebration is not a time for mourning. It's a time to celebrate. But what Jesus is saying here is shocking. He is calling himself the bridegroom. He's casting himself in the role of a divine husband. Only Yahweh is the bridegroom in the Old Testament. So give me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 62, 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For Yahweh delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so, your sons, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Or think about the book of Hosea. I mean, it's like the whole book. You know, Hosea's relationship with this harlot is like... God's relationship with his unfaithful bride, the people of Israel, and he says in chapter 2, we'll maybe just skip down to the end for time, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know me. You shall know Yahweh. So, this is the Old Testament context for the bridegroom language and Jesus is saying, yeah, the bridegroom's here. So how can the guests fast? Crazy. John the Baptist understood this. In John 3, he writes, you yourselves bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I've been sent before him to prepare the way the one who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom he calls himself the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete because i know he's here here he is jesus he must increase i must decrease so this claim that jesus makes is bold it's shocking it took a situation that they were familiar with i mean they'd all know that a wedding is a time for celebration's not celebration not fasting feasting not fasting and said, that is why my disciples aren't fasting. (laughs) If you turn it around and ask the question, well, why were the Pharisees fasting? At least in part, they're fasting from their desire for God to come and liberate the nation of Israel from oppression. Well, guess what? That's what time it is. (laughs) God has come to liberate his people. Again, remember Mark 1, 14 to 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing the good news. But then there's this jarring image in verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. I mean, that doesn't normally happen at a wedding reception, that people just come in and grab the bridegroom and take him away. This is like forcible removal. So this certainly refers to the cross, the death of Christ but most likely it refers to the time between the ascension and the wedding feast of the Lamb as well. So the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus doesn't like dismiss or disallow fasting just across the board. The issue is what time is it? What's the appropriate response at the appropriate time? So if the bridegroom's here, It's not time to fast, it's time to feast. But he will be taken away and then it will be time to fast, albeit in a a new sort of way, which we'll get to in just a minute here. The question for us is, what time is it? (laughs) Because Jesus isn't here, is it? Is it a time for feasting or fasting? Do we live in a time of feasting or fasting? How would you answer that? I think the answer is, Yes, this is the time between the times. The kingdom has come. Good news is here. We've been set free. Kingdom's been inaugurated, but it has yet to come in its fullness. Already, but not yet, which is why we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's why we fast, Yet we can always feast on Christ and sometimes we, you know, feast in thanksgiving and celebration. But we often do fast because we long for the kingdom to come in fullness. So what time is it? Is the bridegroom with us? Well, yes and no. He's with us by his spirit, but he's not with us yet the consummation of the kingdom. So... We feast and we fast. We fast and we feast. So, point number three making all things new, verses 21 to 22. Um, So, the kingdom of of heaven that Jesus is bringing here, it's not a renewal movement, Um, it's a new movement. He hasn't come to just kind of like patch up the old covenant, he's making a new covenant. And so these two verses are like the explanation underneath both of the two sections we just looked at, okay? So look at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So both these metaphors mean the same thing ways of getting at the same thing the old garment old wine skins aren't compatible with a new patch and with new wine and the results if you don't take heed to that are destructive if you just try to add the new to the old so as new wine like we're not familiar with you know fermenting wine and wine skins but as new wine ferments It expands the skin. If you use an old skin, the skin is old and brittle. It'll burst when it expands. So both the wine and the skin are ruined. So the point is that the old covenant is obsolete. It's passing away. Jesus has come to establish a new covenant. And most certainly the traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes are old garment, old wineskins, incompatible with the new wine of the new covenant. Jesus has come to establish a new covenant. Again, he's not just taking an air mattress, getting one of those little plastic thingies, you know, and you know, or rubber, whatever it is. When you try to patch a, an air mattress or an inner tube, no, he's doing a new thing. It's not just patches with your operating system. It's a whole new operating system that Jesus is bringing here. So he's coming to fulfill the old covenant and establish. The new covenant, qualitatively new covenant. New disciplines, new, like radically new internal nature of the new covenant. Okay, so, it's a helpful comment by a guy named James Edwards. He writes this Both parables are about the relation of Jesus, of Christianity indeed, to traditional Judaism. The parables illustrate the radical posture and presumption of Jesus. Jesus is the new path and the new wine. He's not an addition he's not an attachment addition or appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures even Judaism, Torah and the synagogue. He is of course neither ascetic nor anarchist. Okay, so the point is like he's not going to say no more fasting, but he is saying there's a whole new motivational structure. So like new wine of say disciplines like fasting in a new wineskin, like in a new covenantal context. So think about forgiveness of sins. It's totally different than the old covenant. There's no more sacrifice needed because Jesus is the final sacrifice. Think about purity and cleanness, like cleanness laws. Totally different. And he's going to declare all foods clean, right? See, totally new. Table fellowship is different, obviously here. Fasting is different. So Jesus is disruptive here of the status quo, the old covenant. He's not just making a few tweaks and adjustments. He's making all things new. So Tim Chester has this book called A Meal with Jesus, which I would highly recommend, Um, discovering grace, community, and mission around the table. And he says this. He describes the old way of the scribes and Pharisees and the new way of Jesus that he was establishing and he uses these words to describe them. He says, gracious, inclusive, welcoming, feasting, rejoicing, and recognizing your need. That's the new covenant. That's the new way of Jesus. The new wine and the new wineskins compared with religious, exclusive, unwelcoming, fasting, grumbling, and self-righteous. And then he asked the question to you and me, Are you living as someone who belongs to the new way? So we don't just need to make a little extra room in our lives to add Jesus, you know, for lifestyle improvement. We reject the status quo. You know, like, it's not just that we continue as is and just add Jesus as an addition, like in a garnish. No, he's come to make everything new. So final point, point number four, two words to change your life. So a pastor that I was listening to recently reminded me of this story um, in a sermon. Do you know that there were two words that changed Billy Graham's life forever? Anybody ever heard this story? And it obviously changed his life. It also changed countless lives through him. So he started his evangelistic ministry in the 40s, and he was beginning to become fairly well-known. He started doing crusades like in the 1947, I think. Um, his first major crusade took place in 1949 in Los Angeles. And William Randolph Hearst, who was this wealthy businessman, newspaper, publisher, um, he heard Graham and sent a two-word telegram to his editors. Puff Graham. It's kind of a weird verb. Boost Graham. And consequently, Graham found instant celebrity almost overnight. Like he was covered on the front page of newspapers and Life Magazine and all of this. And he obviously went on to preach to over like 200 million people at various crusades around the world. He reached over 2 billion people over the radio in his lifetime. Two words changed his life and through him countless others. And there are two words in this passage that are intended to change our lives. And through us, the lives of many others. Can you guess what those two words are? Somebody just said something. You got it. I don't know who that was. Was Diane? Look at verse 14. This is where this whole thing starts. And he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Those two words changed Levi's life Forever. And those two words are intended to change our lives forever. So if you've been here the last few weeks, we've already noted that there's this strong discipleship theme in Mark. So to follow Jesus, is that word's used 19 times in Mark. It's never used of those who oppose him. It's almost like a synonym for faith. It involves risk and cost. It's an action word, and Mark's gospel account is full of action. Jesus is a man of action. So faith is not just something to know or understand. Following Jesus is not just, you know, mental assent to facts. So these words should ring in our ears. What is the primary application of this section? Jesus says, follow me. First, come to be forgiven, right? We're all sin sick. And praise God, Jesus is a better soul physician than we are sinners. But listen, don't blow by this. Jesus is your Lord, Christian. Jesus is my Lord. Is this real? Is this central to you, to me? Is this our conscious focus on a daily basis? Are you conscious of the fact that Jesus is your Lord and master and you are called to follow him each day. Is this real to us? Like on a daily basis. He's not a supplemental figure in our life. Jesus is the most, the most important person in your life every day. He is central. He is Lord. He must be central. He must be Lord of our lives. So Jesus, or, you know, Christianity is not like taking Jesus vitamins, you know, a little extra boost for your you know, spiritual immune system. He's everything. He's our lifeblood, our sustenance. He's the bread of life. He's necessary to our survival. We must abide in him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, he says. He is Lord. He must be central. So I think we've heard those words many, many times. Oh, follow me, follow me, discipleship, like. But how often does it actually ring in our ears? We need that to ring in our ears. Like tomorrow, when it comes to choices, who am I following? Who is my Lord? Is it money? Is it me? Is it my selfish desires? Is it this, that, the other thing? No, I am a Christian. I am following Jesus. Lord, Jesus, help me follow you today. Now listen, just to round this out and be encouraged, Jesus didn't say, get your act together, Levi. He didn't say, submit your resume, Levi, and maybe I'll consider you. He didn't say, you better get cleaned up if you think you're going to be worthy to hang out with me, Levi. We sang it, come as you are. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. So if you came in this morning, not a Christian, oh, how you need to hear those words. And may the Spirit of God help you hear those words so that they sink down into here and you say, okay, I, if I'm the Lord of my life, I'm gonna run myself into the ground. I can't deal with my sins. I can't forgive my own sins. I can't make atonement for them. Like, I'm not the Lord. You can come in here following your own agenda. You can leave here following Jesus. Remember that call. Repent and believe. The kingdom's here. The king is here. Here's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus died to offer that to you to take care of all your sins. So repent from trying to be your own master or from bowing down to some other so-called God and run to Jesus. Trust in him and follow him. So come as you are. We don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath, but we do need to follow him. Like if you are sick and your doctor is wise and knows what's wrong with you and gives you a prescription and you don't follow it, you don't trust him. You think you know better than the doctor. So action is the fruit of faith. Following is the fruit of faith. So let's follow Jesus, brothers and sisters, wholeheartedly. Like, Lord, even make it more conscious. Like, I can go through so much of my day and not even think of you. Like, ugh, change that. Help me keep you right before me. And then just one final point here on application. There is something about Jesus that made him a magnet for sinners. And frankly, the church doesn't have the best reputation (laughs) for that being the case. And, okay, he's Jesus, and we're not. We should understand that. Um, But when we embody, by his grace, when we embody the love and the mercy and the grace and the servant-heartedness and the sincerity of Jesus, we become a magnet for sinners. And actually, we go toward those people in love rather than shrinking back from them because we don't want to get our hands dirty because they'll defile us. So it was gospel mission emphasis this morning. Um, It still is. Here we go. I love this quote by David Mathis. The pursuit of holiness may keep you from bad company. Okay? But have you ever considered that it might also lead you to keep some bad company? Do we need to put the hospital back in hospitality? Certainly the church is a hospital, right? Hospital for sinners, not the museum for saints, or whatever, you've heard that before. Well, hospital is in hospitality too. So who has been on your guest list? Just think back. Who do you want at your table? What tables are you willing to go and join? We need to follow, if we follow Jesus, remember follow me, one of the places he's going to take us is to the modern day tax collectors and sinners. We need to follow Jesus to extend friendship and ultimately offer the friendship of Jesus with the outcasts and the unsavory. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? and how he talked about his ministry, I became all things to all people in order that I may win as many as possible. And then at the end of that section, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So may the Lord give us grace to follow him in faith. (laughs) We can come just as we are and may the Lord give us grace to follow him, to reach out to and become magnets for sinners because there are so many people around us. I mean, that's all this world is filled. It's the only kind of people this world is filled with. I mean, like maybe this is even just a, maybe a silly sidebar, but I think it sometimes betrays the fact that we can miss it. I've heard Christians say there's this nice neighbor of theirs, nice neighbor. Um, it seems like they're so close to becoming a Christian because they're just so nice. Actually, that might mean that they're farther away if they think that through their niceness they're going to be fine. The older brother was farther from home than the younger brother because the younger brother, through his folly, realized how needy he was. So, Let's close in prayer. We're gonna sing in Christ alone, which is right where we need to be every day, all day. In Christ is everything. He's our righteousness. He's our freedom. And he's the power to live this way in love toward the needy folks all around us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. Thank you that you came for sin-sick sinners like us Thank you that you are a better Savior than we are sinners. And I pray that you would help us to follow you, to welcome the scandal of grace because we are just very aware of our desperate need, but then also follow you to the people that maybe most people shun because they're not really that much different than we are, and they need you just as much as we did and do. So, Lord, please give us grace to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.